Good morning, everyone. How does that sound? Too loud? Not too loud? I sound a little echoey to me. Really? Not too loud? How is this? You know, yesterday, um, I had a fun little trip yesterday. I was in Atlanta for the day, and... I was just thinking I was hearing for Elise. Whose phone's ringing? Okay. So I was in Atlanta yesterday. Um, there is a radio program called Day One. Y'all heard of this? Oddly, Dallas is the only market. There are something like 240 markets in this country that syndicate this radio show. And Dallas is the only major city in the country that does not have a radio station that carries this program. It's very strange. Um, it is a, it's a program, did you all ever hear about the Protestant Radio Hour? It used to be called that kind of in the 20s, 30s, 40s sort of time. Um, and it was meant to be just a sermon broadcast on Sunday mornings on radio stations around the country. And over the years, it became, in a way, almost a, a balance to some of the televangelists um, that were around. So people who were doing, you know, mass healings. And, what's, what's the name of that? Is it Benny something? Benny Hinn? Is that what it was, right? Um, there are all these people that I've, I've never seen, but I know their names. And I think this was sort of the balance to it. It was a pretty straight up, down the middle, kind of solid sermon that you would hear in any sort of Protestant-ish church, wherever you were. And it's uh, recorded in Atlanta, and they have a different preacher every Sunday. And I was one of their preachers a couple years ago, and then they called me this year to do Palm Sunday and Easter. So I'm actually going to be the Palm Sunday and Easter preacher um, on this radio station that is, it's syndicated to like 400 stations around the world, particularly to um, military bases around the world. So U.S. military service personnel can hear something that they might not hear wherever they are around the world. So it's a neat thing. Um, but as I was in the studio yesterday, they're doing a sound check, and it's... Have you ever been in a sound booth like that where you've got all of the sound dampeners? It is the kind of quiet that is almost unnerving. Um, there is no sound in this room so that everything is very clear on the uh, microphone. And as he, he was doing the sound check, the sound engineer, um, at one point he came on, he said, read this, then read that, then read this. Um, and I said, is there something wrong? And he said, I'm, I'm calibrating the microphone because your voice is really low. Do you think that? Because I kind of feel like I sound like a chipmunk whenever I, <laughs> whenever I listen to myself back. I'm always like, hi, everybody. I mean, I just don't. I don't think that at all. But he was having some trouble, so I thought, thank you very much. You know? So, all right, we're going to get started today with chapter 13, and we're going to open with a prayer. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the beauty of this day, and we ask that you be with us today and make space inside our hearts and minds, that your spirit can fill us up, refresh us, and renew us so that we can leave this place inspired to do the work you've given us to do to the glory of your kingdom here on earth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Reminder, if this is your first time or if you haven't gotten one yet, our schedule bookmarks are at both doors so you can see when we will and will not be meeting. Um, as I look ahead, we're really solid pretty much all the way through spring break, which is March 14th. That's really the first Wednesday that we're not going to meet this calendar year. And so, you know, all the way through February, we're good. Today with chapter 13, we continue Jesus's sort of trek to Jerusalem. And I've mentioned that a few times, and so just to give some, a little bit more clarity to that, obviously within the gospel stories, things kick off with Jesus's ministry. With, Mar with Matthew and Luke, we get nativity stories, right? Birth narratives of some kind. But then the bulk of the gospel is about Jesus's ministry. But mostly in all the gospels, about a third, maybe a quarter, but a quarter to a third of the entire story is about Jesus's trial and death and resurrection. And so there is an arc of the narrative throughout the entire gospel lesson, uh, gospel story, including Luke, where Jesus has accepted and is moving toward Jerusalem. Scholars will say Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem. And that basically means he knows what's coming. He knows that he has opted for a path and a mission that will ultimately end in his death. And so when we get to passages like chapter 13, we're kind of in the thick of it. Jesus is face to face with a lot of people challenging this decision. If you put yourself in Jesus's disciples' shoes, they like him. They think what he's doing is great. They think what he's doing is true and good. And so why put yourself in danger? That's what they're wrestling with. Why would he put himself on a path that is so antagonistic that it will ultimately get him at least imprisoned, if not killed. And these followers don't know it will happen, but they know it's not good, right? It's one thing to kind of low hum under the radar, but when you start to pop your head above the surface and antagonize those with power, people with power typically win, and they think that might happen here. And so chapter 13 is really sort of a Q&A with Jesus. We can think of it as we go through these sections. Every section, each of these four sections, will in essence be spurred along by a question. Someone will say to Jesus, X, ask a question, and then Jesus will answer in some way, whether it's through an action or a story. So today in chapter 13, we have four sections we're going to look at. The first is the parable of the fig tree. The second is healing of a crippled woman. The third is the story of the narrow door. Sometimes the parable of the narrow door could be. And then finally, Jesus' lament over Jerusalem, which is not a big section when it comes to the text, but it's big when it comes to the, the theological idea. And so we're going to jump into the story of the fig tree. Well, actually, I'll start with any questions or thoughts in this last week. We haven't had any questions come in on the comment cards. I haven't been ignoring them. Um, and so if for some reason you thought you submitted a question, I promise I haven't like thrown it away or something. I just, it just never made it to me. So do submit those questions on the comment cards if you have them, or you can raise your hand right now real fast if you want to start with one. Nothing about prayer. Good. Okay. Whew, we're good. The parable of the fig tree. This is a good parable. But it starts with one of our perhaps perceived bad guys in the gospel story, right? With Pilate. It's important to note 
And this is something that I, I can't perhaps say too often. This story of Jesus is historically true, right? Jesus was a real person. And that means that the characters that we hear about in this story are pretty much altogether historic characters, right? We likely think that, but oftentimes what we think is true, we may not actually know is historic. And so just as an aside, we have historical evidence that most of the people you read about in scripture, in these gospel stories, did exist. And so that starts with Jesus, right? We have historic evidence that Jesus was a person, right? We also have historic evidence of obviously people like Herod, but also Pilate, right? These are real people, not just characters in a story. They existed in time and they did stuff. And so Pilate, although looms large in our story about his effect on Jesus, that's really a blip in his life, right? Pilate did a lot of bad stuff in addition to kind of being the bad guy in our story. And we begin with that here in chapter 13. Jesus hears from some followers that Pilate has mixed the blood with sacrifices. I'll read this passage to you right at the beginning of chapter 13. At that very time, there were some present, so present with Jesus, with his crowd, who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. What is really happening in that opening statement, Jesus, of course, is teaching people, right? And so he's got people around him, and he's talking and teaching and preaching all the time. And some of these followers have heard that Galilean pilgrims, that's the implication here, people who have traveled from Galilee to Jerusalem on pilgrimage, were somehow killed, and their blood was mingled. So let me explain what that means. If you are familiar at all with Jewish customs, you certainly know about the idea of kosher, right? Kosher is an extension of an understanding that blood or physical byproducts can be perceived as unclean can be unclean if they are not treated properly. You've likely at some point learned, too, about the way that animals were sacrificed at the temple, right? A pilgrimage included a sacrifice to God, and that sacrifice was to be performed a certain way, and it's to be performed a certain way so as to not contaminate other stuff, right? So when an animal was sacrificed, you know, let's just be honest, it could be messy, right? This was not lethal injection, right? This was not putting your dog to sleep or something like that. This was literally a slit, right? The idea was that the bleeding was the cleansing. And so the bleeding had to be done in the right way. If it was done too sloppy, blood, which was very unclean, could get on you or on your stuff or kind of on anything. And then that's a problem. If Pilate is mixing blood with blood, this is not just a bad thing because perceived innocents were dying. This is a, a sacred issue, right? A ritualistic issue. It's one thing that innocents died. It's another thing when blood is now mixed 
to make things unclean. So this is a profoundly bad thing. And they're saying so because of the mixing and the intermingling of the blood. Does that make sense without going into all the other stuff? If you're interested in some of these, um, I, could, I could find some places in the Old Testament where it is outlined with decent specificity about how priests are to sacrifice animals. And it's different for different animals too. That was really the priest's job was to know how to sacrifice properly. Big times have changed, right? <laughs> okay, so as we begin chapter 13, they're warning Jesus what he's doing is going to get him killed, right? That is really what they're saying. So just be careful. And Jesus responds with an idea about repentance. So repentance is critical to understanding Jesus's mission, right? We have sometimes accidentally turned Jesus into a friend, right? Because we like Buddy Jesus. I, I call him Buddy Jesus, right? Jesus is your friend. And it's not that Jesus is not friendly, and it's not that Jesus can be a partner, but the Jesus that is presented in the Gospels is not your friend, right? There's a book I just bought online, and I haven't read it yet, called Jesus is Not Nice. And I think that's correct. Um, Jesus is giving the people around him and us the opportunity to turn toward God. That is what he's really doing. And throughout this whole chapter, in different ways, the message Jesus is giving is that turning toward God, following God, is not easy. This is not a pleasure cruise, right? This is something you've got to work towards, and it means you might lose something else. But what you gain is everything. And so here in this moment, Jesus takes this opportunity because it seems totally logical for his followers to say, you might die, so stop doing this stuff, right? Total sense. Except, in essence, Jesus is saying, there's worse things than dying, right? Our goal is not to not die, but to live. This is hard for us, because in our lives, in our social structure, how much of our energy goes into not dying, right? If we really think about the way in which we, far too many people, unfortunately, end their lives, is in this long, painful process of not dying. It doesn't mean that it's not a good thing to try to treat whatever. But there is a balance that we strike as faithful people to say there are worse things than dying. And that if it ultimately means we cannot live, then is it worth it? And Jesus is really saying here, it's better to live and to then be cut short than to have not lived at all. And so he's not going to let the fear that he will die, because he's going to die, like we're all going to die, right? So he's not going to let that fear keep him from living the way that he knows he should. And so he tells the story of the fig tree. We probably know this parable pretty well, right? There is a man who has planted a fig tree and left a gardener in charge of this tree to nurture the tree and grow the tree and the owner of the tree has come back now three years looking for fruit. 
and the tree has not produced fruit for three years. And so says to the gardener, cut this tree down. It's a waste of time. It's taking up space. It's sucking water and soil and nutrients, and it's getting nothing for it. And the gardener says to the owner, give it one more chance. Give it one more season, one more year. Give it one more chance to bear fruit before you cut it down. It does not take a rocket scientist to understand that what is really happening in this parable is that God has given all of us the opportunity to bear fruit, right? And has come back looking for that fruit and come back looking for that fruit. And finally, God is saying, you know what? It may just be time to cut this tree down. And Jesus swoops in here to say, give him one more chance, right? They can bear fruit, give them another chance. And Jesus' mission is, in essence, the gardener to this fig tree. For us as the fig tree, Jesus is trying for us to understand what's happening in the world, to turn, to repent, to go toward God and not toward whatever else we might want to have in the world, and in doing so, bear fruit. Any questions about this before we move on? We get next to Jesus in the synagogue. And Jesus in the synagogue, um, time shifts here, right? He tells the parable of the fig tree, and then all of a sudden, in the next verse, he's in the synagogue. And we know that on the Sabbath, one is not to work, right? We've already had this conversation here before. And Jesus is in the synagogue, and he sees a woman so crippled. She is completely bent over. And if we put ourselves in the shoes of the people who were there, you know, these communities are not large, right? And if you're coming to synagogue, you probably know everybody, right? You're talking about 100, 200, 300 people, not so many. And this woman would have been known, right? It's not like she just appeared crippled, right? She would have been the woman you saw every Sunday and you thought to yourself, God bless, right? I mean, that looks like it hurts. Have you seen people like that? You know, if they're walking and they're hunched or they have a limp or something and you think you just, that's got to hurt, right? And so this poor woman is coming in, and it doesn't say so, but I imagine Jesus really just has sympathy here, right? And reaches out and lays his hands on this woman, and she immediately stands upright and is able to walk out healed. That should be a joyful moment, right? We know this woman, right? This poor woman has walked in here hunched over for months, years, decades. Who knows how long she has been crippled? And Jesus touches her and she stands upright and is not in pain and is able to walk out. That should be a celebration, but what happens? The leaders say, ah, 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 this is the Sabbath and you just did work on the Sabbath. Talk about kind of getting off balance, right? Here this woman is healed and the leadership of the synagogue is annoyed that Jesus did not follow the law of no working on the Sabbath. There, is, there are metaphors that Jesus throws in at the end of this passage about the kingdom of God. So let's talk a minute about the kingdom of God. 
The kingdom of God is something that we strive to understand, right? No one can just simply tell you what that is. Unless you want to say the kingdom of God is just all love, right? Yes, that's probably the right answer. But what is that, right? That's not necessarily satisfying to us. Like, how do we do that? And we love to complicate simple things, right? Just love one another. Well, it can't be that easy. You know, how do you do it, right? And then we get off on tangents of law and parameters and all that sort of stuff. And that's really what has happened to the legal system here with the Jewish people, is that with well-intended uh, effort, there have been such strict parameters put around the way that they function that when Jesus does something miraculous, the reaction is not, hallelujah, look at this woman, she's healed. The reaction is, it is the Sabbath, and you should not be working. And Jesus' point here is, that's not the wrong way to be, right? Go back to the establishment of the Jewish people with Moses, right? The Sabbath is sacred. Of course it is. The Sabbath is the day in which you break from your work and you focus on God. But when you start to parse that out into so many specific rules, and then it prevents you from seeing the amazing work of God in front of you, that's the problem, right? The problem is not taking a break. That's a good thing. The problem is not even wanting to explain what that break should look like. But it's when that kind of desire for detail and definition starts to get in the way of you seeing the glory of God all around. And we see this in churches all the time, right? I mean, God, we're Episcopalians. And the ways in which we structure ourselves are specific right? There are things you do and things you don't do. And I admit one of my weaknesses is I don't tend to care as much about whatever it is we're supposed to do, right? And any of you who've served on the altar guild, at some point, (laughs) everyone on the altar guild has like thrown their hands up with me because there is this well-intended sort of, should we do this or that? And they all know my answer is whatever. Um, because Jesus does not care, right? And so what do you want to do, right? I trust you. You make the call, right? And whatever you want to do is great. It's going to be great. Um, that's, that's the balance that we have to strike, right? Let's do it well. Let's not be tacky or disrespectful or messy or sloppy. But if it's this or that in both are all of those good things, I don't know, dealer's choice, you know, whatever you want to do is fine. And that doesn't always, not everyone likes that, right? Madeline's laughing. I see some of you, some of the Altar Guild members are laughing. They're like, that's so nice. And other Altar Guild members are going, you know, (laughs) make the decision. Um, I love you all. So this is really what's happening in this moment. And so people say, hold on, Jesus. The Sabbath is supposed to be special. If the Sabbath is special, and this is what makes it special, if you don't follow those special rules, and yet you claim that you are bringing about the kingdom of God, what is the kingdom of God? Did you follow that logic, right? We're good Jews here, right? And we have, over hundreds of years and dozens and dozens of generations, defined 
the best way in which we can worship God, right? Acknowledge the good. And yet you've come in to do something new. And if you're doing something new that goes against some of the traditions we have, then what is this kingdom that you are talking about? And so Jesus tells two, the Bible calls them parables. They're hardly really parables, but we're going to look and just read them because they're super short. What is the kingdom of God like, Jesus says, and to what should I compare it to? It is like, sorry, verse 18. It is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in the ground. It grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, Jesus said, to what should I compare the kingdom of God? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. So we get two images here. Image is probably the better word, not a parable. Kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like yeast. What's similar about a mustard seed and yeast? It grows. How does it start? Tiny, right? So small. I mean, yeast is nothing, right? I mean, yeast is hardly there at all. If you have like a piece of yeast, it's hard to even see it, right? And a mustard seed is just impossibly small, right? Super, super, like a poppy seed, really, really tiny. And yet both, when cared for the right way and used in the right way, grow huge, right? So with very, very little, a lot can happen. That's really the image that Jesus is giving here. The kingdom of God is not necessarily a place, right? That's where we get messy. If we think, okay, bookmark that. If I were to ask you, what is heaven and what is hell? It is very likely that the descriptive words or images you would use would be from Dante, right? So just a little quick history. There was no, the, the way we might describe heaven and hell was not a commonly understood uh, idea until Dante wrote his, you know, masterpieces, right? And Inferno and Paradiso were articulations, images, a kind of worlds created to articulate this kind of heaven-hell that the Bible implies. But the imagery of heaven and hell that we all think is biblical is probably 90 plus percent Dante, right? That's just a note because don't assume that what you think Jesus says about heaven and hell is what Jesus said. It's probably all the stuff we've heard throughout history from literature. So in this moment, when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, don't immediately put on top of the kingdom of God, heaven. Or even, even I'd say worse, but not worse, but okay, even worse. If you make heaven this other place, then you're really missing the invitation of Christ, right? It's very easy for us to make heaven this other place so that what we do on earth, so long as it checks the boxes, then we get into heaven 
once we're dead. It, that's not really what Jesus offers, right? It doesn't mean that that's not a, a way, one of the ways we could potentially understand heaven. But more than any other way, Jesus is saying heaven can be here. And that the kingdom of God, which is what Luke uses, or the kingdom of heaven, which is the phrase Matthew Luke uses, basically the same thing. That the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, is what we realize when we follow God and love God and our neighbor as ourselves. That is the kingdom, right? And it expands beyond this world. So it's not that it doesn't exist beyond this world, but we don't have to wait until we're not in this world anymore. That the kingdom of God can be right now. And so when Jesus says, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is mustard seed or yeast. What he's really talking about is that the kingdom of God is almost the moment that something can change. When you accept the invitation of Christ, that's when change begins to happen. I should learn from the experience of talking about prayer, but I'm dense, so I'm going to go into this idea of what then is salvation, right? If we are being saved from something, what is it that we're being saved from? I believe we are being saved from a self-centered, world-only kind of life. And we are being ushered into a kingdom life. What that does not mean is that in one moment, we are doomed to hell, and in the next moment, we got the ticket to heaven. It's not this moment of all wrong and all right. It's a journey. And Jesus says so right here with the mustard seed in the east, right? You don't put a mustard seed in the ground and have a tree, right? That's not how it happens. You don't put yeast in dough with warm water and immediately have it leavened, right? But it does begin. And it's the journey, the beginning moment, when we actually choose to turn toward God and Christ. That's when things start to change. And the kingdom of God begins to come in, to break through, and to actually make us the instruments of heaven. I'm done with that thread. I love carnality. What a good word. That's a good word, Madeline. Okay. Um, so just note that. Great word. Um, being saved from our own carnality. Wow. So I would say that, that the idea, like the carnal reality, does also imply the physical. And I think that that, that probably makes sense. Yes. I think that we're sort of saved from the limit the limiting or the limit the limited physical reality that we experience now and begin to glimpse the eternal reality yes i also think that there is a shift from what would be wholly self-serving to something that would be wholly sacrificial if jesus is the epitome of sacrificial love. 
we won't get there entirely. But there is a sliding scale, right? I think that we're somewhere on the scale and we begin to shift as we change the way we live. And as we change the way we live, we grow closer and closer and closer to God. And this has been pretty much the commonly held idea in Christianity for 2,000 years, is that we as human people never reach the perfection of sacrificial love that Jesus embodied. But it's the attempt to get there that is what we're called to do, right? And as we attempt every day to turn toward Christ again and again and again, we move that dial. We sort of slide closer and closer and closer to what would be the perfection of Christ. And that's the journey, right? That's discipleship, is that we move in that direction all the time, every day. That journey begins with the desire for Christ, right? Sacramentally, we'd say that journey begins with baptism. And that's a good thing to say, right? Baptism is, a, is that necessary moment where we really do make a shift. But it's dangerous to think that baptism is magic and to say that baptism alone is really what brings us closest to God. We express our baptismal experience through actually doing stuff, loving one another, right? Luther himself, who you know, tried to reform the idea of baptism away from magic, said a true Christian person cannot help but do good work, right? Yes, the salvation moment comes through faith alone, but it's not that it ends there. We cannot help if Christ is in us to do good. And trying to do more good as we move along this life journey is what a person does when Christ is inside them. So it's not one or the other, but it's both. And so if you're not necessarily bearing fruit, let's go back to the fig tree, right? If your life is not bearing fruit, something is not as good as it could be, right? And it's not just, that could sound heavy. So we all go through hardship, right? It's not every moment has to be some perfect attempt at bearing fruit. But the arc of our salvation story in our lifetime should move toward the best fruit possible. Mother Teresa is a great, have, have any of you ever read, so when Teresa died, Oh gosh, when did she die in the 90s? Seriously? Yeah, it's been 20 years, hasn't it? I think it was the 90s. Um, when she died, they published a set of letters from um, her spiritual director. And those letters she had asked, this is, this is, I love the Catholic Church for things like this. Um, so Teresa, who had a confessor, a spiritual director for decades, wrote letters to this man and explicitly, multiple times, said they should stay private. Then she died, and the Pope said, nope, not private, we're going to publish them all. Um, thank you, Pope. So published these letters a year or so after she died, and what stunned me about these letters, any of you ever read this book? A book, but it's basically a collection of letters. 
Teresa never felt the presence of God in her life. It's amazing that she did what she did and decades, I mean decades of letters to this man said over and over and over again, I believe this is true. I believe the work I'm doing is the work of Christ and I never feel God's presence. That's incredible. Except I'm good with that because I think we often make a condition of our discipleship receiving something, right? It's, it's like a, a contractual arrangement, right? Now, God, I'm going to love some people, but I also need this and this and this and this, right? Um, it's that arrangement, that bargaining, like I, I need, if, if I get a little, I'm going to get a little, right? But if I don't get any, if I don't get much, I'm giving nothing, right? I mean, that's, that's often, I think, how people can be. And yet here's Teresa who believed. Now, I don't think she's right. I'm going to say that. But she believed that she was doing this without God's presence in her. And how that's, that happens, I don't know. I mean, I would say God was with her for sure. But she felt like he wasn't. And that's a, that's a real thing. You can't change how you feel. I have another story about Teresa that really means a lot to me. There was a novice who was training to be a nun and had, was working with Teresa in India and spent months going around with Teresa and caring for people and that sort of stuff. And pretty much everyone Teresa cared for were not Christian, right? These were mostly Hindus, some Muslim, some you know, indigenous. And finally, this novice said to Teresa, I've never heard you tell these sick people about Jesus. And she said, isn't it supposed to be what we do, that we evangelize and we tell the story of Jesus and, and invite people to become Christian? And Teresa said to this novice, when they see the face of Christ, they will recognize him because of me. And I think that's a that again is a powerful way of understanding that the kingdom is not something we control or even understand, and yet it's true. And I think that for us, we like to understand stuff. We want to know everything, and we ask questions all the time. And if we get unsatisfactory answers, we somehow begin to think that what we are asking about is somehow wrong. It's just not true. It doesn't mean it feels satisfying, but it is still true. That God's kingdom is, we are agents of that kingdom whether we see the fruit or not. And perhaps it's because we are the fruit that it's hard for us to see it. But I think that what Jesus is getting at here is that it's, it's a partnership that God does not force it, and we cannot do it without God. And together, we actually grow, right? Leaven the bread, we grow into a tree, we bear fruit. I mean, all these images are all the same, right? That it, it takes time, but it will happen.
Any other comments or thoughts? Section three is the narrow door. This is a very interesting idea because it, it links very explicitly with the idea of the kingdom. So Jesus gets, if we flip to verse 23 in chapter 13, I'm going to read, just, I'm going to read this passage because it's important if you haven't read it yet to sort of hear what Jesus actually says. So again, Q&A with Jesus, right? So it begins with someone asked Jesus, right? That's how we get going. Someone asked Jesus, Lord, will only a few be saved? And Jesus said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. Then he tells a story. When once the owner of a house has got up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then in reply, he will say to you, I do not know where you come from. Then you may begin to say, well, we ate with you and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I do not know where you come from. Go away, all you evildoers. And then there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's easy at first to understand this story as somehow limiting the number of people who could be saved, right? That in a way, what Jesus is saying is some will, some will not. So get in early, right? It's like Black Friday at Best Buy, right? If you're not there to get the sale, you're out of luck, right? Like we only have so many TVs in stock. Sorry, you're out of luck. Not the case. Instead, what Jesus is really talking about is there is a period of time when you can get in. And then there will be a period of time where the door is shut. Jesus is really that narrow door. And he is walking around in this gospel story, literally walking around, basically inviting people through the door, right? Come through him to find God. And then now, with these stories and with our help, continuing to invite people through this narrow door, but it's not forever. At some point, that door shuts. We don't know the time or the place, but at some point, that door will shut. And even the people who liked the sound of the door thought what was through the door would be good, but never went through, are going to be out of luck. Let me build on that a little bit more. What Jesus is saying here is that salvation, grace, being with God is free, but it is not cheap. It is not something that you just get for nothing. Remember at the beginning of chapter 13, there is this very clear idea that you will likely lose something in order to gain everything. And we don't like to lose anything. We want everything without anything being lost. Jesus says it just doesn't work that way. A narrow door is like a physical narrow door, right? Have you ever tried to get through, get some big thing through a door? I mean, God, it takes me back to college, trying to get a sofa through a dorm door, right? I mean, we all have kind of done that thing where you walk up with whatever it is you're carrying and you think, how are you going to get it through that door, right? And you turn it over, and you turn it upside down, and you put it on its side, and you're trying really hard. In essence, what Jesus is saying is there is 
an expectation to get through this door. It is not just a door, it is a narrow door. And that means something is left outside, right? You can't bring everything you want through this narrow door. And he's not talking about physical stuff. He is talking about the emotional and spiritual anchors we have to the way the world values stuff, right? What is it that you could not let go? That's not rhetorical. Think about what it is that you would not let go of in order to follow Jesus. If we're honest, we all have something, right? And it may not be a thing. You might be sitting there like, no, you can take everything, all my stuff. How about your people? That's when it gets hard, right? How many times do we hear Jesus say something like, I came to turn mother against child, brother against sister? We don't like this. It's not that anyone's excluded, but how is it that we enter into this Christian way with everything we want. And he says he can't. Something goes. And it's the stuff that holds us back that goes. This narrow door is also something that links to, you can, you can uh, translate the Greek either as door or gate. And so if you were to trans translate it as gate, do think about what these people know about Jerusalem. If you've ever been to Jerusalem or looked at Jerusalem, there is a wall around the whole city, and the way you access the city from the outside is you go through gates. Some gates were big and wide, and some gates were really small. If you were dumb, and didn't get on the right road with your big ox cart, and you show up to the narrow gate, you're out of luck. Same thing kind of happens here with the kingdom. There is this physical example of a spiritual reality that not everything goes through, and yet everyone is invited through. And so if you stay out thinking you might be able to go in later, right? You see that door, and you see the kingdom, and that sounds good. But you know what? You're going to do that a little later because you want to earn a lot of money first. Or you're going to do that a little later because you want to build a business or build a family or travel a little bit or not be exclusive, uh, exclusive about the way that you live. Even if you think the kingdom looks good, you, we're going to get to that later, right? Jesus is saying, no time like the present, because at some point, that door is shut. And once the door is shut, it's shut. And we can unpack the theology more all you want, but that's what Jesus said. So, he didn't say anything else. Sorry. <laughs> it's nice when Jesus is clear. You're like, sorry. <laughs> Jesus said. Um, all right, lastly, just so we touch on it before we go, the lament over Jerusalem. Just like the beginning of chapter 13 began with Pilate, mentioning Pilate, the end of chapter 13 mentions Herod. Herod is, again, a historic character. 
they represent two levels of earthly authority, right? So sociopolitically, Pilate represented Rome. Rome was the real power here. But Rome was not completely foolish to not lift up and at least give a nod to the indigenous peoples. And so what they did in a place like Israel, filled with Jewish people, is they let the Jewish people have their leader. Now, most scholars or historians believe that Herod was functionally a puppet of Rome, right? They basically went and found a Jewish person, or they propped up Jewish people who would be loyal to Rome, right? So it's not like he was elected or anything like that. He was a Roman sympathizer, but he was Jewish, and so they were able to put a Jewish person on the throne. And then Rome said, look, you govern yourself. Aren't we generous? And so Herod is in many ways the same as Pilate. They just simply represent two different ways that Rome influenced their authority in the region. This is the very first time Herod threatens Jesus in Luke. Now, we know about Herod, just Herod, back in Matthew, looking to kill all of the newborn boys, right? That's Matthew, that's not Luke, and that's a different Herod. So Herod the Great, who actually built the temple-ish, expanded the temple, that's really the better way to say that, was the father of the Herod mentioned here. And so this is Herod Antipas, and that, in essence, is just one of Herod's sons. And so even though the scripture, the gospel writers just use the word Herod, they are two different people. It, it, it's not a title, it is his name, but it's almost like when you get confused with Caesar. You know, there are multiple Caesars. Which Caesar are you talking about? Sort of like what's happening here. Which Herod are you referencing? Because there are multiple ones in many different generations. This Herod explicitly threatens Jesus. And just as chapter 13 began, his followers are concerned because this threat is real. However, Jesus gives this parable of a mother hen gathering her brood under her wings. And Jesus says, this is what God has been trying to do for you. And yet you resist God's guidance and protection and love. And then Jesus gets to the lament, where he weeps, cries, is angry about Israel's constant resistance of God. And how we can potentially understand this is a connectedness to Judaism, right? Jesus was not looking to start something new. He was fulfilling the promises and the prophecies of Judaism. And so to that end, Jesus is linking this work back to way before him, right? And what he's implying in this is that God has been trying to get through to people over and over and over again. And that Jesus is this kind of next level. It's like prophet 2.0, right? You've not been listening and so now God has really put the pedal to the metal and come down himself 
in this embodiment, this incarnation, right? Jesus is not just another prophet. Jesus is divine presence on earth. But the message is consistent, right? God has not changed. God is still wanting people. It's just that the people have not accepted and heard the whole truth. And Jesus comes down to try to embody the whole truth. It was as if you saw a portion of a painting, but not the whole thing. You still saw the painting. You just didn't see the whole thing. And so it's important for us to not say that what was happening before Jesus was wrong. But I would say it was not complete. And that in Jesus, there is a wholeness to the story that God has been trying to say for generations and generations. A way to clarify the love that God has been showing to people for hundreds and hundreds of years. All right. That pretty much takes us to the end of chapter 13. Any final thoughts or questions with two minutes left? All right, then I'm going to close with a joke because that worked well on Thursday night. So here was my other joke. If you all were not at the Interfaith panel on Thursday night, you missed it. Um, I see Trisha Stewart and Allison Bovard in here who were the brain trust behind that event. So thank them for such a wonderful thing afterwards. And any of you who volunteered to help. So you may not know that at the end of the night, Amy Heller, who was moderating, said, well, do you have any jokes, right? And I, I kid you not, as I was pulling into this parking lot on Thursday night, I thought, I better have a joke, just in case. And so I googled a rabbi, a priest, and an imam <laughs> just to see what came up, right? So I was ready with a lame joke, but I was the only one who had one, so that was good. Um, so here's the other one that came up. So a devout Orthodox Jewish man goes to see his rabbi and says, Rabbi, I am so upset because my son has married a Christian girl and has become Christian. What am I supposed to do? And the rabbi says, I am so sympathetic because my son wanted to become Christian too. And so I prayed to God and I prayed to God and it was, he was silent for weeks and weeks and weeks. And finally, he answered my prayer and he said, listen, I don't know what to tell you because the same thing happened to my son. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Thank you all. Have a good day.